Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week on the show, we've got Kyle Rodder, market analyst at IG Australia, telling us about the action in technology stocks in the US going on at the moment. Malcolm Farr, the national political editor for news.com.au, runs us through the drama that is the national energy guarantee, which is approaching fruition. Annette Beecher, chief Asia-Pacific macro strategist for TD Securities, takes us through what's going on in economics, in particular, the very good trade figures that came out yesterday. And Tim Lawless, head of research at CoreLogic Asia-Pacific, takes us through the month's new data on house prices in Australia. Joining me now is Kyle Rodder, market analyst for IG Australia. Well, Kyle, the concerns in the market among traders seems to have shifted from trade war to the tech stocks uh, in the last week or two. I mean, what what are you seeing? I mean, do you you think that there's something serious going on with tech stocks? I think there is something serious going on with tech stocks. um, But what I've found over the last 24 to 48 hours is a bit of a relief coming back into the market in the tech space. Uh, following that, what was really a disastrous um, set of results from from Facebook, um, I think at this point in time we're starting to see a little bit of a split between um, different companies, the way that they're assessed um, in terms of their value, um, and where investors should really be putting their money um, from a tech point of view. Um, so if you look at uh, the the companies that have really underperformed, being Facebook, uh, Netflix, um, and to a lesser extent. Uh, Twitter, um, you know, just based on their market cap, it wasn't quite as shocking. Um, but we've seen certainly some strength um, as opposed to those poor poor results out of those companies in some of the sort of the traditional powerhouses. Apple we had at the uh, halfway point of this week, but also earlier than that, Amazon too posted uh, really solid results as well. So I think um, what's what's really going on in here at the moment is a bit of a change in perceptions around you know what were say the Fang stocks all being grouped together, uh, a bit of a bearishness coming about towards those subscription-based business models that have really quite narrow revenue streams, and a lot of that comes from advertising. Uh, compared to, say, the tech stocks that we saw just best personified yesterday by Apple, uh, who posted really, really good results, but on the basis that they've been able to diversify their product offering um, and continue to hit new markets um, as well. And off the back as well, we don't have, with, uh, with those particular companies, the PR disasters that we've seen um, you know, coming out of Facebook and whatnot too. So the, the tech stocks were, were certainly an interesting one to start the week. Um, I think Apple was a real flashpoint. Uh, because if those results came in weak, I think it was going to be a real tech wreck over, over, over you know, across the board, I should say. Um, but the uh, the results yesterday from from Apple are really, really strong. So I um I still see a, a bit of strength in in tech, and I think that's showing up in the Nasdaq a little bit as well. So the um, fangs, so yeah, the fangs, as you mm-hmm. say, that they're basically divided up now. So you've got your Facebook, mm-hmm. Net, Facebook, Netflix, and Twitter, which isn't one of the fangs because it's too small, but it's come small, down, yeah. it's come down a fair bit. So those stocks are on the nose, and uh, Apple, Amazon, and Google are still okay. Yeah, for the most part, um, and it's, I, I do see this as being a bit of a structural shift over the time because, um, as the name suggests, all of these companies are getting bundled in with one another, and their performance are assessed. Um, you know, even from a very practical point of view, you know, we, um, our company, for example, um, trades products tied uh, to an index uh, entirely across. Uh, the FANG stocks. So, you, you know, we're, we're seeing, um, despite the fact that there were some strong uh, results coming out from, say, Amazon, um, you know, Microsoft is showing strength as well, that these these results coming out from, say, Facebook and Netflix are dragging those companies down. Now, what we might see is that uh, uh, investors might be less willing to take the risk on bundling 
all of those companies together. Um, we need to pick out the ones that they feel a little bit more confident in the business models of and obviously aren't going through some of these, like I said before, disastrous PR uh, sort of situations like in the sense of uh, Facebook. We might be seeing a little bit of a split between these sort of internet-based companies, which are you know Facebook, Netflix um, and whatnot, subscription-based, advertised revenue-based, um, towards more that's uh, focused on um, you know really strong infrastructure, strong products, strong hardware, um, and have a, a diversity of offering uh, in terms of uh, in terms of their product. So I think that the, the big lesson coming out of this will be that you know although things were looking quite quite dire in the tech space uh, at the end of last week again by virtue of Facebook, that um, there's just going to be a bit of a restructuring in a way that we think about um, the tech space in particular, um, which is you know for me quite exciting actually because I think it does indicate that there's further strength in the tech space to come. So what about the uh, Australian market? Because um, the ASX, mm. the ASX 200, and that has been holding up pretty well. Uh, mm. Do you think? Mm. Do you think it's looking vulnerable? I think it's looking vulnerable at the moment. Um, I think the investment conditions in Australia are really quite favourable. We're going to have a low interest rate environment for a while yet. Um, the fundamental picture in the uh, in terms of the economy is quite strong, um, and we're expecting a, a pretty reasonable um, upcoming reporting season mostly by a little bit of upside surprises from the miners who have, by virtue more of strong management rather than necessarily cyclical factors over the last quarter or so, um, are looking to, to post some, some good results. But the concern really is now, we're seeing this story again unfold over the next 24 to 48 hours, that um, some you know, way into the sort of medium to, to long term is that uh, if we continue to see uh, a fall off in commodity prices because, uh, because of these trade war concerns and the impact that it'll have on global growth, combined with the fact that we see a bit of a... Um, you know, we've we've seen an end to this story of um, synchronised global growth. I think that could really potentially weigh on the ASX. Um, and we've also got some you know real domestic issues starting to worry about. And I think they come from the forms of the form of the banks as well, which uh, which I see coming under pressure. So the ASX has been remarkably resilient um, because the investment conditions, like I said, have been strong. Um, and there is you know plenty of good stories around there. But I think the uh, the macro picture will start. Um, you know, probably uh, weighing on the on the index and the performance of Aussie shares more generally, um, and become much much less of a uh, a talking point than, than some of the good news stories that we've seen over the last couple of months. And, and look, just back on trade. I mean, it even even though traders' attention, share market traders' attentions have shifted to mm. the tech stocks in that last week, few weeks, the trade issues haven't mm. gone away, have they? So there's probably a fair chance no. they'll a fair chance they'll come back uh, to bite the market again. Do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I think we got a little bit lucky in timing in terms of um, corporate earnings in the United States were forecast to be quite strong. And although there's probably been uh, a little less of a response from that, I think that's more um, in terms of what we've seen in the in the market itself. I think that's probably more because the, the bar's been set so high. But that's really taken the priority in terms of the headlines. Um, uh, in terms of uh, yeah, global shares, um, and it, as a result, the, the, the trade war talk went to, to, to one side somewhat. Um, also, you know, as well, we, we didn't hear a great deal of uh, news out of the Trump administration in the last week or two, um, up until the last couple of days, about that issue. And the Chinese seem to be very reluctant to um, stoke the fire and, and, and attract the ire of uh, President Trump and his administration um, by retaliating or even commenting too much on that particular issue. But I think the, the big news over the last 48 hours has been this, this talk now that um, the US administration or the White House is looking to go the Chinese into a negotiation um, by potentially upping uh, these proposed tariffs, um, not only in terms of the, the volume of products that uh, are going to be slapped with tariffs, 
uh, but also increasing the actual tariffs themselves on those products to about 25%. Um, and if that happens to be the case, we're going to start seeing some real structural factors coming into play in terms of slower growth within the global economy. Um, and at that point in time, with, with that sort of a backdrop, um, markets have no choice but to respond uh, quite bearishly, I think, to that, to that particular news. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. I'm joined now to talk about politics by Malcolm Farr, the National Political Editor for News.com.au. Now, Malcolm, uh, Tony Abbott and his mates are going right down to the wire on the NEG. Do you think they... uh, I mean, he's saying he's continuing to bag it. Do you think he's going to get there in some way? Do you think they're going to stop it? Well, it it would be... Uh, a shame, according to the industry, if they did. Look, there are three objectives to the NEG, uh, an overall objective of providing certainty to the industry, uh, and that includes the reliability of power supply. Secondly, of lowering uh, prices to consumers. And thirdly, of reducing emissions. Now, we might get to the point, because of the internal liberal resistance movement, uh, that we only get two of those, possibly none. Uh, no doubt certainty has been undermined at the moment by Tony Abbott and uh, his enclave of, um, as I say, the, the, the Colsheviks. Uh, and their, their objective is to uh, reduce the emissions reduction target. Uh, and they also want to uh, impose coal-fired power stations against the the market logic for increased investment in renewables. So it's not a very particularly happy picture for Josh Frydenberg and Prime Minister Turnbull, nor for the industry as a whole, which wants the NEG to go through. Well, but it's interesting because the um, because the government's getting all this modelling showing that the NEG would reduce power prices, and that's been the st- that but that's been the story all along with the National Energy Guarantee, that it would reduce power prices. But these guys, Tony Abbott and them, Tony, don't believe it. They could, that You could line up modelling from here to the moon and they just simply say they don't believe it. That's right. I haven't seen uh, a huge and overwhelming amount of evidence to contest uh, the, the modelling. Uh, it's simply the statement from Mr Abbott that pigs might fly. And you do get the impression that he doesn't believe uh, the outcome simply because they don't accord with his own views. Uh, it, it sounds a primitive form of opposition, but uh, given um, the uh, the influence of the small group within the Liberal Party, it still might be effective in destabilising uh, the neg approach. Well, because the Labor, the Labor states, the ALP, which, which obviously um, uh, are crucial for the thing to be passed, well, all the states have to sign up. The Labor, the Labor states are saying, well, we don't want to sign something that ends up being a blank cheque for the Liberal Party because they'll change it straight away. Yeah, that, that's that, but that's something I think Josh Frydenberg can address uh, when he has uh, you know, informal discussions with the ACT, Queensland and Victoria. Um, that, that's an issue that's sort of on the periphery of the uh, the main planks of of the of the neg. It's it's a more a political issue that can be overcome. Greater threat to uh, to Mr. Frydenberg's plan is from uh, within his own party. Can we just get on to the 
big by-elections from last Saturday now. Um, uh, it's, it's remarkable, really, that the, the by-elections happened because of the um, the Section 44 ineligibility of the people concerned who had to stand again because they were found to be ineligible and they all got back in. So what was it? What was it all about? Maybe, no, maybe the voters, maybe everyone else, maybe the voters just don't care about it. I don't think they do. Most certainly, there is no odium attached to being elected whilst unqualified uh, to sit in Parliament. Uh, and I think there are a couple of reactions uh, from voters. One is that uh, that it was all just a, a technicality that had no real relevance to, to their to their uh, representation. You know, for example, you know, nobody in New England really thought that Barnaby Joyce was a Kiwi. Uh, and uh, secondly, I, I think voters see this in terms of, uh, of uh, political argy-bargy, of, of partisanship, uh, using the, the Constitution as a club uh, for, for party uh, 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 rivalries. Uh, and they just, they simply discount the offensive itself, and, and it's, it's, I guess it's a political equivalent of uh, no harm, no foul. Therefore, uh, they're not going to penalise the people who were, despite the fact that they knew what they should do, were too incompetent to fulfil their obligations under the constitution. Yeah. And these people went on to waste a lot of time and a lot of money, taxpayer money, in causing by-elections. So, uh, yeah. The, I don't know if voters are particularly forgiving, but they're not in a rush to penalise people for uh, uh, for breaching the constitution. It's just just not relevant to them. No, in in AFL parlance, the voters have said, "Play on." <laughs> exactly, which makes it even more difficult to sustain an argument for a referendum to uh, to fix up the constitution when uh, yeah. uh, when the voters aren't you know just don't care. And finally, Malcolm. Um, who is Emma Hussar or Hussar, and why do we care about her? Well, we care because there's a stream of, of allegations made against her by staff, uh, and none of them have been corroborated. None of them have uh, been substantiated. They're still being investigated, and she's replied to some of them. So she's a, she's the, a, the she's, a, of, she's a federal Labor MP. Isn't she for? Oh for, yes, sorry. For, she's a for, who? for who? Where does she? Where, for the Labor seat? Party, uh, at Lindsay in Western Sydney. Uh, it's uh, very much a, uh, a a Labor Party style of seat, although it was held, of course, previously by the Liberal Jackie Kelly, who came in with the Howard swing in '96. But allegations of, of, of Ms. Hassar's staff against her are being investigated by a Labor-appointed tribunal. Uh, now the. the without going into the allegations, because as I say, she hadn't responded to a lot of them and uh, uh, and they're still being uh, examined. But the problem for the ALP is that she might have to quit her seat and Labor would have to go to yet another by-election in Western Sydney. And uh, the the exasperation of voters might be more evident there than it was during the, uh, the weekend of five by-elections. But the, the, the thing is that that whilst Ms. Hassar might be able to weather uh, claims that she was harsh and tyrannical uh, to staff or that other things, it'll be very difficult for her to survive a combination of that with 
other allegations that she misused taxpayer money, should they be found to be true. So it's a very dicey time for the ALP, and there'll, there'll be some tension within uh, leader Bill Shorten's office over the outcome of this uh, investigation. Now to talk about the economy and specifically about trade, I'm joined by Annette Beecher, the Chief Macro Strategist for Asia Pacific for TD Securities. Well, Annette, we've just had the trade data come out uh, Thursday morning. What did you learn from that? What happened? Well, I'm really encouraged by this uh, monthly report for June because that now, uh, of course, gives us the, the June quarter. And uh, the picture that we're forming is this is probably some of the best trade data we've seen in quite some time because since 2012, we've been talking about a decline uh, in the terms of trade and how now and again trade has been a drag on growth, i.e. Uh, negatively impacting GDP. But what we've actually got for the first half of 2018 is we've had both uh, a terms of trade boost, so prices have been positive, and we've also had volumes picking up. So in other words, trade is also adding to GDP. Now that's something I haven't witnessed for at least four or five years, whereby we've had a position whereby both prices and volumes are adding to growth. It's also keeping our current account deficit low. Uh, when you're trying to talk to global investors, they're still of the view that you know Australia has a, a massive current account deficit, you know five six percent of GDP, whereas in fact it's more like two and a half three percent of GDP. We've been a real beneficiary uh, of the booming Asian region for uh, for the last five to ten years. Yeah, well, so as you say, we've had either good volumes and low prices or high prices and low volumes. So so what's behind this uh, this time? Just simply the strength of the Chinese economy. It, it certainly helps, although one thing that uh, that I think sometimes gets lost in the wash, China is certainly our number one trading partner. It brings in you know at least fifty sixty billion dollars uh, worth of income every year. But hot on the heels behind that is Korea and Japan and India. Uh, we're not a, a one-trick pony. As tempting as it is to say that we just send iron ore to China, I think what really gets a bit lost in the wash is LNG exports, so the gas exports, uh, is all heading to Japan. And LNG exports are actually up to $40 billion now. They've uh, increased more than, I'm just thinking, I think two and a half times uh, LNG exports have uh, have picked up in the last couple of years. So yes, we were all talking, we all love the construction uh, part of the LNG boom, but now we're getting the benefit, which is uh, the prices and the volumes coming through. So we're a little bit more broad-based than, than I think general uh, discussion gives credit for. So I guess this will underpin GDP growth, uh, both for the for the June quarter, I guess, but also perhaps for the rest of the year. But do you think this makes us should make us more worried about the trade war or less worried? I mean, if we're so reliant on trade, maybe maybe a trade war is more of a more of a concern. It's it's certainly a concern. Uh, it's it's always tough when you're dealing with U.S. President Trump because there is a lot of noise. And we really have to get through the noise and and worry about the signal. And I think when it when it comes to the the trade wars at the moment, as we are right now sitting here in in August, 
the, the data continues to defy the rhetoric, which is Chinese trade is thriving month after month, and, and so our trade with China here in Australia is, uh, is thriving month after month, and, and trade is significantly uh, adding to growth. After three years of trade detracting from growth, I've, on my estimate here, I've got, I think trade could actually add nearly a full percentage point to GDP in 2018. So at the moment, there's a lot of words, but the actions are, are what we need to work with and certainly what the RBA needs to work with. So I know when the RBA meets uh, shortly on the 7th of August, they'll be very happy with this strong trade buffer that we've set up. So even if we have um, a slight trade disruption, I think we've still got Japan, we've still got Korea, and we've still got trade with other major trading partners to get us through uh, any sort of disruption in trade with China. So does this, do you think that we should think about this trade as possibly bringing forward a rate hike in Australia? Or not, in the, you know, because considering that obviously domestic interest rates have nothing to do with trade, uh, have no impact on us. <laughs> Absolutely not. I think um, we, but, we really have seven, seven degrees of separation here between interest rates and trade. Yeah, of course, but, but it will uh, underpin GDP. So if they come into 2019 with a, with a relatively good GDP number behind them, do you, do you think that will influence the RBA or will they look through that and be looking at the domestic economy? I'm not sure they'll look through trade. I mean, this this is uh, the Reserve Bank under Glenn Stevens, for example, uh, was certainly keen on. Uh, you you might remember the phrase yourself, Alan. You know, the rotation of growth uh, away from uh, domestic demand and and towards trade. So you certainly can't complain when you finally get an economy that's almost evenly balanced between domestic demand and and trade. And I know I've always been on the hawkish side of consensus because I don't think we need GDP growth driven by the consumer. I mean, we all know consumers are heavily indebted as it is. So we only need the consumer growing at 2 to 3%. We don't need the 4 plus that we're used to. And underlying of all this, of course, is we know there's an infrastructure boom going on, non-mining investment. Uh, has picked up, and let's not forget, you know, of our top ten exports, three of them are in the services sector. So we're we're much more broad-based, and if all of this broad-based growth gets us to three, three and a quarter percent GDP, I don't know why we need record low interest rates. No, well, that's that's that. I guess that's right. <laughs> and um... uh, although I feel like I've been saying that for twelve months, and yet every quarter we get. CPI that limps along and every quarter we get wages that limp along and I think the the RBA under Phil Lowe has been very, very clear. He wants wages closer to three than two and so the next big signpost for us is the 15th of August. That is the next WI or wage cost index and we really need to see wages start climbing towards two and a half percent at least before we start talking about rate rises next year. Uh, and the other factor is that uh, property real estate prices are clearly falling now, uh, potentially accelerating in Melbourne at least, um, but definitely in decline, tipped over. So, I mean, that's going to that's going to give the Reserve Bank something to think about as well. It, it does, but it's not the Reserve Bank's job to prop up asset prices. Um, I think the rest of the world have, has done a pretty good job of zero interest rates exacerbating asset prices for the last decade, and all that is done is show up in the ballot box 
as people are quite disenchanted that the gap that between the rich and poor has only gotten worse in the last decade. So from from my perspective, a high, higher interest rate regime will close that gap and then we might stop getting some protest votes in the, in the ballot box. Now for my monthly chat with Tim Lawless, Head of Research at CoreLogic, about the July house price data. Well, Tim, the results for July, we've just heard. Um, more of the same, really. It is a bit more of the same. I mean, in the sense that dwelling values are continuing to drift lower. They're down 0.6% across the combined capital cities. But below the surface there, there are a few subtle trends that are becoming a bit more pronounced. For example, we saw the combined regional markets have slipped into negative growth over the past three months ending July. That's a little bit different because the regional markets were generally quite a bit more resilient than the capital cities to declines. So what it really does highlight is that the softening in market conditions where a lot of focus has been on Sydney and Melbourne is really affecting a lot of markets around Australia, not necessarily uh, bringing values lower, but, but certainly seeing at least softening rates of growth across almost every region. And um, it looked a bit like Melbourne's taken over as the biggest decliner from Sydney. That's right. And, and once again, Melbourne started off uh, as a fairly resilient market. It, it didn't move through its peak until November last year, uh, a good five or so months after the Sydney market peaked. But over the past three months, we've seen Melbourne values have fallen by 1.8%. That's relative to Sydney, which was down 1.1%. So Melbourne's now falling uh, at the fastest rate of any capital city. But still, in terms of from when the market peaked through through to current, we've seen Melbourne values uh, have fallen by quite a bit less than, than what Sydney had. Melbourne values are down by 2.9%, while Sydney values are down by almost 5.5%. Yeah, but Melbourne's, Melbourne's trying to catch up now, though, aren't they? It, it does seem that, that, that the way, uh, absolutely. So another really interesting fact about Melbourne is when you uh, look at the, the, the different quartiles of the market, you can see that the most expensive end of the market is actually where values are falling. Uh, they're down 4.1%, whereas the most affordable end of Melbourne's market has seen values over the past 12 months have risen by 7.5%. This is the biggest differential of any capital city across the, uh, the broad pricing spectrums. Do you have any idea why that would be happening? Yeah, absolutely. It's a big part of the stronger performance around the more affordable end of Melbourne's market, as well as you can see the same trends in Sydney. And and both of these cities or states uh, from New South Wales and Victoria have seen stamp duty concessions for first home buyers, which has seen a real flood of, of buyers coming into the marketplace, obviously the first home buyers, generally focusing around those those more affordable price points. Yeah, and I guess to the to the extent to which um, Melbourne and, and Sydney are also uh, supported by population growth, the new the new immigrants to those places are, are not at the high end of the market. They're not buying expensive houses; they're buying cheap ones. Well, you would expect that's the case, and uh, you know, look at the, the case of foreign um, migration. A big part of that migration tends to be students and so forth, which are probably helping to support some rental demand. But, but as you say, if they are buying into the market on a residency visa, then they're generally probably targeting the apartment market or the lower spectrum of housing prices. Yeah. Uh, just looking at other markets, um, uh, Perth and Hobart are the ones that it seems to me stand out. I mean, we can get to Brisbane in a moment, but um, you would have expected Perth, you would think, to, to start bottoming 
roundabout now, but it doesn't look like it is. Can't find a bottom. No, and it was looking very, very likely like it was approaching the bottom of the cycle for some time there. And uh, it looks like it's, I guess, uh, found a new uh, a new lease of life in its downturn. So we did see Perth values fall by 1.5% over the past three months. So a little bit worse of a market uh, than we were seeing earlier in the year. Values in Perth are still about 12% lower than when they peaked back in 2014. So it is quite an affordable market now, but we are still seeing relatively weak migration trends which are probably detracting from, from housing demand in that market and still a bit of an overhang of, of supply, particularly in, in the outer fringes for detached housing. And I'm wondering whether uh, the Hobart market is starting to roll over. I mean, the, the annual rate of increase is still 11.5%, but the, but the but in June, uh, they were flat, entirely flat. Well, the median in Hobart was flat. So I wonder whether you reckon that um, Hobart might be tipping over. I think this might be one of the first signs that the market is is peaking out, at least in terms of a peak rate of growth. Uh, we saw the annual growth rate peak at about 14% uh, about four or five months ago, and that's, that's reduced down, as you said, to about 11.5% over the past 12 months. So the trend rate of growth is clearly slowing down. We've always said that Hobart's uh, as strong as the market as it has been, the rate of growth uh, has been unsustainable. So it makes sense that the market is slowing down as affordability constraints start to bite. And of course, there's tighter credit conditions impact on, on that market as well. Yeah. And the thing about Brisbane was has always been, well, at least for a while, the strength of the apartment market. There are so many apartments and uh, so much uh, demand for them. Is that continuing? Well, we've seen a real oversupply of apartments across Brisbane uh, for, for quite a number of years now, and, and the trend has been consistently downwards, up until recently at least. So it looks like you know, with the construction cycle in Brisbane peaking nearly two, two years ago, that was in September 2016, we have seen some absorption of that supply, and we've seen a real uh, push in, in migration as well, so population growth is really ramping up. And we've actually started to see Brisbane unit values emerging from this downturn. In fact, uh, the past 12 months, they posted their first annual rise in, in about four years. So we are starting to see some potential recovery. And that's well, it's been a very soft market. But remember, values in Brisbane's unit market are still about 12% lower than what they were 10 years ago. So it is quite a, a good value for money market, it seems, at the moment. <laughs> This week's birthday is my mum, Mildred Alice Kohler, who turned 90 last weekend. And her favourite tune is Glenn Miller's In The Mood, which is a pretty good song. And in fact, as a birthday treat from my sister, mum's going to see a show called In The Mood at the Palais, based on Glenn Miller's music. Anyway, he's In The Mood. That's all from me. Enjoy your weekend.